0: Chapter thirty five of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter thirty five. His mien is lofty, but his gaze too well a wandering soul betrays. His full dark eye at times is bright with strange and momentary light, and oft his features and his air a shade of troubled mystery wear. A glance of hurried wildness fraught with some unfathomable thought. Mrs. Hemans To most of our traveling public, a little trip from Boston into New York State seems an everyday affair, scarce worth calling a journey. But to Dr. Jeremy it was a momentous event, calling the good physician out of a routine of daily professional visits, which, during a period of twenty years, had not been interrupted by a week's absence from home, and plunging him at once into that whirl of hurry, tumult, and excitement which exists on all our great routes, especially in the summer season, the time when the American populace takes its yearly pleasure excursion. The doctor was by nature and habit a social being, never shrinking from intercourse with his fellow men, but rather seeking and enjoying their companionship on all occasions. He knew how to adapt himself to the taste of young and old, rich and poor, and was well acquainted with city life in all its forms. In the art of traveling, however, an art to be acquired by practice only, he was totally unversed. He had yet learned the adroit use of those many springs, which touched at the right moment, and by a skillful hand, soften the obdurate hearts of landlords, win the devoted attendance of waiters, inspire railroad conductors and steamboat officials with a spirit of accommodation, and convert the clamorous, noisy hackmen into quiet, obedient and humble servants at command. In Dr. Jeremy's travelling days, the stage-coach was the chief vehicle of convenience and speed, the driver was a civil fellow, each passenger a person of consequence, and each passenger's baggage a thing not to be despised. Now, on the contrary, people moved in masses, a single individual was a man of no influence, a mere unit in the great whole, and his much-valued luggage, that which seemed in his eyes a mark for the heaviest knocks and bruises. Dr. Jeremy was appalled at this new state of things, and quite unable to reconcile to it either his taste or temper. To him the modern landlord resembled the keeper of an intelligence office, who condescendingly glances at his books, to see if he can furnish the humble suppliant with a situation, and often turns him away mortified and disappointed. The waiters, whom the honest and unsophisticated doctor scorned to bribe, were an impudent lady set of varlets, conductors and steamboat masters, lordly tyrants, and the hackmen, a swarm of hungry, buzzing, stinging wasps, let loose on wharves and in the depots for the torment of their victims. Thus were these important members of society stigmatized, and loudly were they railed at by our traveller, who invariably, at the commencement and close of every trip, got wrought up to a high pitch of excitement at the wrongs and indignities to which he was subjected. It was astonishing, however, to see how quickly he cooled down, and grew comfortable and contented, when he was once established in car or steamboat or had succeeded in obtaining suitable quarters at a hotel he would then immediately subside into the obliging friendly and sociable man of the world would make acquaintance with everybody about him and talk and behave with such careless concern that one would have supposed he considered himself fixed for life and was moreover perfectly satisfied with the fate that destiny had assigned to him Thankful, therefore, were the ladies of his party when they were safe on board the steamboat, a circumstance upon which they were still congratulating themselves and each other, while they piled up their heavy shawls and other extra garments in an out-of-the-way corner of the cabin, when the doctor's voice was again heard calling to them from the other end of the long saloon, "'Come, come, wife! Gertrude! Emily! What are you staying down in this stivied-up place for? You'll lose the best part of the view.' And coming towards them, he took Gertrude's arm, and would have hurried her away, leaving Mrs. Jeremy and Emily to follow when they were ready. But Gertrude would not trust Emily to ascend the cabin stairs under any guardianship but her own, and Mrs. Jeremy immediately engaged the doctor in an animated discussion as to the advisability of his adopting a straw hat, which the thoughtful wife had brought from home in her hand, and which she was eager to see enjoyed. By the time the question was settled, and Emily, at Gertrude's persuasion, had been induced to exchange her thin mantilla for a light travelling-cloak, which the latter was sure she would require, as there was a fresh breeze stirring on the river. The boat had proceeded some distance, and when our party finally gained the head of the stairs, and looked about them for seats on the deck, not a single vacant bench or accommodation of any sort was to be seen. There was an unusually large number of passengers, nearly all of whom were collected at the stern of the boat, Dr. Jeremy was obliged to leave his ladies, and go off in search of chairs. "'Don't let us stay here,' whispered Mrs. Jeremy to Gertrude and Emily. "'Let's go right back before the doctor comes. "'There are beautiful great rocking-chairs down in the cabin, without a soul to sit in them. "'And I'm sure we ain't wanted here to make up a company. "'I hate to stand with all these people staring at us, "'and crowing to think they've got such nice places. "'Don't you, Emily?' "'Miss Jeremy was one of the people who were constantly forgetting that Emily could not see.' But Gertrude was not. She never forgot it, and as she stood with her arm lightly passed around her friend's waist, to prevent the motion of the boat from throwing her off her balance, it was no wonder they attracted attention. The one so bright, erect, and strong, with youth and health, that she seemed a fit protector for the other, who, in her sweet and gentle helplessness, leaned upon her so trustingly. "'I think, when we get seated in the shade, we shall find it cooler here than it is below.' said Emily, in reply to Mrs. Jeremy's urgent proposition that they should make their escape in the doctor's absence. "'You always prefer the coolest place, I believe.' "'So I do, but I noticed there was a good draw of air in the ladies' saloon, and—' Here the good woman's argument was interrupted by the cordial salutation of Dr. Grisworth, who previously seated with his back towards them, had turned at the sound of Emily's flute-like voice, which once heard, invariably left an impression upon the memory—' When he had finished shaking hands, he insisted upon giving his seat to Mrs. Jeremy, and at the same instant another gentleman, who, owing to the throng of passengers, had hitherto been unnoticed by our party, rose and, bowing politely, placed his own chair for the accommodation of Emily, and then walked quickly away. It was the stranger whom they had seen at breakfast. Gertrude recognized his keen, dark eye, even before she perceived his singular hair and as she thanked him, and placed Emily in the offered seat, she felt herself color under his earnest glance. But Dr. Grisworth immediately claimed her attention for the introduction to his daughters, and all thought of the retreating stranger was banished for the present. The Miss Grisworths were intelligent-looking girls. The eldest, lately returned from Europe, where she had been traveling with her father, was considered a very elegant and superior person and Gertrude was charmed with the ladylike cordiality with which they both made her acquaintance, and still more with the amiable and sympathizing attentions which they paid to Emily. By the time that Dr. Jeremy returned with the solitary chair which he had been able to obtain, he found Gertrude and Dr. Grisworth comfortably accommodated through the skillful agency of the latter, and was thus enabled to sink at once into his seat, and subside into that state of easy unconcern which admirably became his pleasant, genial temperament. Long before the boat reached West Point, where the Jeremys were to go on shore, it was plain to be seen that an excellent understanding subsisted between Gertrude and Miss Grisworth's, and that time only was wanting to ripen their acquaintance into friendship. Gertrude was not one of those young persons who consider every girl of their own age entitled to their immediate intimacy and confidence. She had her decided preferences— AND, THOUGH INVARIABLY CIVIL AND OBLIGING, WAS RARELY DISPOSED TO ADMIT NEW MEMBERS INTO HER SACRED CIRCLE OF FRIENDS. SHE WAS QUICK, HOWEVER, TO RECOGNIZE A CONGENIAL SPIRIT, AND SUCH A ONE, ONCE FOUND, WAS CLAIMED BY HER ENTHUSIASTIC NATURE, AND ENGRAFTED INTO HER AFFECTIONS AS SOMETHING OF KINDRED BIRTH. NOR WAS THE READILY ADOPTED TIE EASILY LOOSENED OR BROKEN. WHOM GERTRUDE ONCE LOVED, SHE LOVED LONG AND WELL. FAITHFUL WAS SHE IN HER EFFORTS TO SERVE and prompt in her sympathy to feel for those whose interest and happiness friendship made dear to her as her own. Perhaps Ellen Grisworth divined this trait of her character, and appreciated the value of so steady and truthful a regard, for she certainly tried hard to win it, and her father, who had heard Gertrude's history from Dr. Jeremy, smiled approvingly as he witnessed the pains which his high-bred and somewhat aristocratic daughter was taking to render herself agreeable, to one whose social position had in it nothing to excite her ambition, and whose person, mind and manners, constituted her sole recommendation. They had been for about an hour engaged in the enjoyment of each other's society, and in the view of some of the most charming scenery in the world. When Netta Grisworth touched her sister's arm, and glancing towards another part of the boat, said, in an undertone, "'Ellen, do invite Mr. Phillips to come back and be introduced to Miss Flint.' See how lonesome the poor man looks. Gertrude followed the direction of Netta's eye, and saw the stranger of the morning at some distance from them, slowly pacing up and down, with a serious and abstracted air. He has not been near us for an hour, said Netta. I am afraid he has got the blues. I hope we have not frightened your friend away, said Gertrude. Oh, no, indeed, replied Ellen, although Mr. Phillips is but a recent acquaintance. We have found him so independent, and sometimes so whimsical, that I am never astonished at his proceedings, or mortified at being suddenly forsaken by him. There are some people you know, for whom it is always sufficient excuse to say, it is their way. I wish he would condescend to join us again, however. I should like to introduce him to you, Miss Flint. You wouldn't like him, said Netta. Now, that is not fair, Netta, exclaimed her sister, to try and prejudice Miss Flint against my friend. "'You mustn't let her influence you,' added she, addressing Gertrude. "'She hasn't known him half as long as I have, and I do not dislike him by any means. "'My little straightforward sister never likes odd people, "'and I must confess that Mr. Phillips is somewhat eccentric. "'But he interests me all the more on that account, "'and I feel positive he and you would have many ideas and sentiments in common.' "'How can you say so, Ellen?' said Netta. "'I think they are totally different.' "'You must consider Netta's remark very complimentary, Miss Flint,' said Ellen good-naturedly. "'It would not be quite so much so if it had come from me.' "'But you wished me to become acquainted with your oddity,' remarked Gertrude, addressing herself to Netta. "'I suspect you act on the principle that one's misfortunes should be shared by one's friends.' Netta laughed. "'Not exactly,' said she. "'It was compassion for him that moved me. I can't help pitying him when he looks so homesick.' and I thought your society would brighten him up and do him good. "'Ah, Netta, Netta!' cried her sister. "'He has excited your sympathy, I see. "'A few days more, and I shouldn't be surprised "'if you went beyond me in your admiration of him. "'If so, take care, you transparent creature, "'not to betray your inconsistency.' Then turning to Gertrude, she said, "'Netta met Mr. Phillips yesterday for the first time, "'and has not seemed very favorably impressed.' "'Father and I were passengers in the same steamer in which he came from Liverpool a few weeks ago. "'He had an ill turn in the early part of the voyage, "'and it was in a professional way that Father first made his acquaintance. "'I was surprised at seeing him on board the boat to-day, "'for he mentioned no such intention yesterday.' "'Gertrude suspected that the agreeable young lady might herself be the cause of his journey, "'but she did not say so. "'Her native delicacy and the slight knowledge she had of the parties forbade such an allusion.' and the conversation soon taking another turn mr phillips was not again adverted to though gertrude observed just before the boat stopped at west point that dr jeremy and dr grisworth having left their party had joined him and that the trio were engaged in a colloquy which seemed to possess equal interest to them all at west point gertrude parted from her new friends who expressed an earnest hope that they should again meet in saratoga and before the bustle of going on shore had subsided and she had found on the narrow pier a safe place of refuge for Emily and herself. The boat was far up the river, and the Miss Grisworths quite undistinguishable among the crowd that swarmed the deck. Our travellers passed one night only at West Point. The weather continued extremely hot, and Dr. Jeremy, perceiving that Emily drooped under the oppressive atmosphere, was desirous to reach the summit of Catskill Mountain before the Sabbath, which was now near at hand. One solitary moonlit evening, however, sufficed to give Gertrude some idea of the beauties of the place. She had no opportunity to observe it in detail. She saw it only as a whole. But thus presented to her vision, in all the dreamy loveliness of a summer's night, it left on her fresh and impressive mind a vague sentiment of wonder and delight at the surpassing sweetness of what seemed rather a glimpse of paradise than an actual show of earth. So harmonious was the scene, so calm, so still, so peaceful. Emily, darling, said she, as they stood together in a rustic arbor, commanding the most striking prospect both of the river and the shore. It looks like you. You ought to live here, and be the priestess of such a temple. And locking her hand and that of Emily, she poured into her attentive ear the holy and elevated sentiments to which the time and the place gave birth. To pour out her thoughts to Emily was like whispering to her own heart and the response to those thoughts was as sure and certain. So passed the evening away, and an early hour in the morning found them again steaming up the river. Their first day's experience having convinced them of the danger of delay, they lost no time in securing places on deck, for the boat was as crowded as on the previous morning, but the shores of West Point were hardly passed from their view before Gertrude's watchful eye detected in Emily's countenance the well-known signs of her weariness and debility sacrificing, without hesitation, the intense pleasure she was herself deriving from the beautiful scenes through which the boat was at the moment passing. She at once proposed that they should seek the cabin, where Miss Graham might rest in greater stillness and comfort. Emily, however, would not listen to the proposal, would not think of depriving Gertrude of the rare pleasure she knew she must be experiencing. "'The prospect is all lost upon me now, Emily,' said Gertrude. "'I see only your tired face. Do go and lie down.' "'if it be only to please me. "'You hardly slept at all last night.' "'Are you talking of going below?' exclaimed Mrs. Jeremy. "'I, for one, shall be thankful to, as it's comfortable again, "'and we could see all we want to from the cabin windows, can't we, Emily?' "'Should you really prefer it?' inquired Emily. "'Indeed I should,' said Mrs. Jeremy, "'with such emphasis that her sincerity could not be doubted.' "'Then if you will promise to stay here, Gertrude,' said Emily, "'I will go with Mrs. Jeremy.' Gertrude assented to the plan, but insisted upon first accompanying them to find a vacant berth for Emily, and see her under circumstances which would promise repose. Dr. Jeremy having, in the meantime, gone to inquire about dinner, they at once carried their plan into effect. Emily was really too weak to endure the noise and confusion on deck, and after she had lain down in the quiet and nearly deserted saloon, Gertrude stood smoothing back her hair, and watching her pale countenance until she was accused of violating the conditions of their agreement, and was at last driven away by the lively and good-natured doctor's lady, who declared herself perfectly well able to take care of Emily. "'You'd better make haste back,' said she, "'before you lose your seat. And mind, Gertie, don't let the doctor come near us. He'll be teasing us to go back again. And we've no idea of doing any such thing.' Saying which, Mrs. Jeremy untied her bonnet-strings, put her feet up in the opposite chair, "'clapped her hands at Gertrude, and bade her be gone. "'Gertrude ran off laughing, "'and a smile was still on her face when she reached the staircase. "'As she came up with her usual quick and light step, "'a tall figure moved aside to let her pass. "'It was Mr. Phillips. "'He bowed, and Gertrude, returning the salutation, "'passed on to the place she had left, "'wondering how he came to be again their travelling companion. "'He could not have been on board previously to her going below with Emily. "'She was sure she would have seen him, she should have known him among a thousand. He must have taken the boat at Newburgh. It stopped there while she was in the cabin. As these reflections passed through her mind, she resumed her seat, which was placed at the very stern of the boat, and with her back to most of the company, gazed out upon the river. She had sat thus for about five minutes, her thoughts divided between the scenery and the interesting countenance of the stranger, when a shadow passed before her, and looking up, prepared to see and address Dr. Jeremy, she betrayed a little confusion at again encountering a pair of eyes whose earnest, magnetic gaze had the power to disconcert and bewilder her. She was turning away, somewhat abruptly, when the stranger spoke. Good morning, young lady. Our paths still lie in the same direction, I see. Will you honor me by making use of my guidebook?" As he spoke, he offered her a little book containing a map of the river and the shores on either side. Gertrude took it and thanked him. As she unfolded the map, he stationed himself a few steps distant, and leaned over the railing, in an apparently absent state of mind. Nor did he speak to her again for some minutes. Then suddenly, turning towards her, he said, "'You like all of this very much.' "'Very much,' said Gertrude. "'You have never seen anything so beautiful before in your life.' He did not seem to question her. He spoke as if he knew. "'It is an old story to you, I suppose,' said Gertrude. "'What makes you think so?' asked he smiling gertrude was disconcerted by his look and still more by his smile it changed his whole face so it made him look so handsome and yet so melancholy she blushed and could not reply he saved her the trouble that is hardly a fair question is it you probably think you have as much reason for your opinion as i had for mine you are wrong however i never was here before but i am too old a traveller to carry my enthusiasm in my eyes as you do added he, after a moment's pause, during which he looked her full in the face. Then seeming, for the first time, to perceive the embarrassment which his scrutiny of her features occasioned, he turned away, and a shadow passed over his fine countenance, lending it for a moment an expression of mingled bitterness and pathos, which served at once to disarm Gertrude's confusion at his self-introduction and subsequent remarks, and render her forgetful of everything but the strange interest with which this singular man inspired her. Presently, taking a vacant chair next hers, he directed her attention to a beautiful country residence on their right, spoke of its former owner, whom he had met in a foreign land, and related some interesting anecdotes concerning an adventurous journey which they had taken together. This again introduced other topics, chiefly connected with wanderings in countries almost unknown, even in this exploring age. And so rich and varied was the stranger's conversation, so graphic were his descriptions— so exuberant and glowing his imagination, and so powerful his command of words, and his gift at expressing and giving force to his thoughts, that his young and enthusiastic listener sat entranced with admiration and delight. Her highly wrought and intellectual nature sympathized fully with the fervor and poetry of a mind as sensitive as her own to the great and wonderful, whether in nature or art, and, her fancy and interest thus taken by storm, her calm and observant entertainer, had soon the satisfaction of perceiving that he had succeeded in disarming her diffidence and embarrassment. For as she listened to his words, and even met the occasional glance of his dark eyes, her animated and beaming countenance no longer showed signs of fear or distrust. He took no advantage, however, of the apparent self-forgetfulness with which she enjoyed his society, but continued to enlarge upon such subjects as naturally presented themselves, and was careful not to disturb her equanimity by again bestowing upon her the keen and scrutinizing gaze which had proved so disconcerting. By the time, therefore, that Dr. Jeremy came in search of his young charge, conversation between her and the stranger had assumed so much ease and freedom from restraint that the doctor opened his eyes in astonishment, shrugged his shoulders, and exclaimed, "'This is pretty well, I declare.' Gertrude did not see the doctor approach, but looked up at the sound of his voice— Conscious of the surprise it must be to him to find her talking so familiarly with a complete stranger, she colored slightly at his abrupt remark, but observing that her companion was quite unconcerned, and even received it with a smile, she felt herself rather amused than embarrassed. For, strangely enough, the latter feeling had almost entirely vanished, and she had come to feel confidence in her fellow traveler, who rose, shook hands with Dr. Jeremy, to whom he had, the previous day, been introduced— and said with perfect composure, "'Will you have the kindness, sir, to present me to this young lady? "'We have already had some conversation together, "'but do not yet know by what name we may address each other.' Dr. Jeremy, having performed the ceremony of introduction, Mr. Phillips bowed gracefully, and looked at Gertrude in such a benignant fatherly way that she hesitated not to take his offered hand. He detained hers a moment while he said, "'Do not be afraid of me when we meet again.' and then walked away, and paced slowly up and down the deck until passengers for Catskill were summoned to dinner, when he, as well as Dr. Jeremy and Gertrude, went below. The doctor tried to rally Gertrude a little about her gray-headed beau, declaring that he was yet young and handsome, and that she could have his hair dyed any color she pleased. But he could not succeed in annoying her in that way, for her interest in him, which she did not deny, was quite independent of his personal appearance. The bustle, however, of dinner, and going on shore at Catskill, banished from the good doctor's head, all thought of everything, except the safety of himself, his ladies, and their baggage. Fit cause, indeed, for anxiety to a more experienced traveller than he. For so short was the time allotted for the boat to stop at the landing, and deposit the passengers. And such was the confusion, attending the operation of pushing them on shore, and flinging their baggage after them, that when the panting engine was again set in motion, the little crowd collected on the wharf resembled rather a flock of frightened sheep than human beings with a free will of their own. Emily, whose nervous system was somewhat disordered, clung tremblingly to Gertrude, and Gertrude found herself, she knew not how, leaning on the arm of Mr. Phillips, to whose silent exertions they were both indebted for their safety in disembarking. Mrs. Jeremy, in the meantime, was counting up the trunks, while her husband, with his foot upon one of them, and a carpet-bag in his left hand, was loudly denouncing the steamboat, its conductors, and the whole hurrying-scurrying Yankee Nation. Two stage-coaches were waiting at the wharf to take passengers up the mountain, and before Dr. Jeremy had turned his back upon the river, Emily and Gertrude were placed in one of them by Mr. Phillips, who, without asking questions, or even speaking at all, took this office upon himself, and then went to inform the doctor of their whereabouts. The doctor and his wife soon joined them. A party of strangers occupied the other seats in the coach, and after some delay they commenced the afternoon's drive. End of chapter 35